And sorry, I know you guys wanted to clap, but everything I'm going to say is going to be amazing. Uh, how do you pay, man? Uh, if you don't write checks, how do you pay these guys? Great cash, homie. Mama, there goes that man. And welcome to episode 77 of Carson Sack Podcast, where we talk balls. On this episode, we have a fantastic mail sack segment with listener questions. We have some college football talk. We have a little NFL talk. And then we have a huge Masters discussion and preview for you. So, without further ado, let's just sit back, relax, let's get right into things. I do need to remind you though, like, rate, review, subscribe, anything else, wherever you get your podcast from, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitch, I don't know, wherever you get them, please like, rate, review, and subscribe. It helps me out humongously. So thank you for doing that if you do end up doing it. Now, like I said, let's get right into it. Let's get to the mail sack. Our first question comes from Polly Marino, who asks, Why do the Chargers keep losing in such terrible ways? Two weeks in a row, the Chargers lose on the very last play. Last week, they lose to the Raiders. The week before that, they lose to the Broncos. Justin Herbert is putting them in position to win. Their defense is giving up a little too many points for my liking, but they're doing all right. As much as I like Anthony Lynn, at some point you have to look at him and say the inability to close these games falls back on your head coach. And I think Lynn is a great defensive-minded coach. I think he's a very good head coach. But over the course, I think, of the last couple years, he's been given a grace period where I think in other situations with his record and how he's performed as a coach and how many losses he's had in such close games, he would probably be fired already. So ultimately... It is the player's job to go out and win these games, but at some point you have to look at Anthony Lynn and say, hey, maybe it's partially on you. So I'm going to say why they're losing these games is Anthony Lynn's fault a tiny bit more than what it is the players. Our next question comes from Lexi France, who asks, if I were to get an Eagles jersey, which one could I rep respectfully? At this point, they are dropping like flies. Would hate to pick the wrong person. So, we are going to either say you get a Miles Sanders jersey. He gets hurt a little bit, but I think he's going to be the running back for that team for a very long time. I think you could get, can't get an Ertz because they thought about moving him. You could get a Slay jersey. Um, They trade for him last season, and I think he's going to be a part of that defense for a very long time. I think you could go with the Jason Kelsey, the center pick. Um, I think after the Super Bowl, he really showed his personality in the parade with that victory speech he had, the outfit he wore. Don't know how much longer he's going to be there, but even if he were to be moved or retired or stepped away from the game, I think people are going to look so fondly on him that regardless if he's there or not, no one is going to disrespect you for owning his jersey. Uh, I think you could maybe look at a Fulgram 
jersey as well, the new hot receiver for them. I think he's done enough where he's going to be a part of that team and be a staple for them for a while. Um, or a Cameron Johnston, the punter. Um, I think he's one of the more underrated punters in the league. Uh, an Australian, I believe, an Ohio State graduate. So you have a few options. They're not all sexy picks, um, if you will, but I think I would lean mostly to the Jason Kelsey jersey out of anybody. The next question comes from Maeve Armstrong, who asks, who do you think the number one draft pick for the NBA is? Um, She says, you can throw, put a few options, really, whatever you want. So... I think that the Minnesota Timberwolves are going to be between um, LaMelo Ball and Anthony Edwards. And I think them already having D'Angelo Russell and him being... He's not a ball-dominant guy, but I think he likes it better when he the offense runs through him. Um, LaMelo is obviously a good shooter, but every highlight you see, he's really uh, dominating the ball as well. You can't. There's only one ball, so it's not going to work out. I think Anthony Edwards is going to go number one to them. I think he's a good fit for them. Sort of takes over that Andrew Wiggins role where a guy with a lot of potential and hopefully it can be seen through this time where the Wiggins, he hasn't fully developed into what everybody thought he was going to. But Edwards, I think he's too good to let go and not take him and then have him potentially be this star in the league where you're going to be kicking yourself if you don't. He's freakishly athletic, already has the size of an NBA player, and I think he's a plug-and-play guy for them that day one he's going to be the starter for them rather than working on him coming off the bench. So I think Anthony Edwards out of Georgia just because of all of his intangibles and because of really his potential and I think that is so that's what the NBA drafts on these days is just potential because so many of these guys are so young and I think he's got one of the bigger upsides in the draft if he does pan out to how people are thinking he's going to our next question comes from Stephanie McLean who asks I want to know what is the wildest play ever made in football in your opinion and why the wildest play I think would have to be the immaculate Reception, the play by the Steelers where the ball bounces off one of, I, yeah, I'm going to be honest, I forget who they were playing, the Cowboys, it wasn't the Cowboys, it was an AFC uh, game, so I forget that, but bounces off the player, Franco Harris catches it nearly off the ground and, and uh, scores on that play. Sends them to the next round of the playoffs. That's massively huge. Um, wild as well. I think the Stanford and Cal, the banners on the field play is pretty insane. I believe the Music City Miracle with Tennessee when they were in the playoffs. Let's see. The Odell Beckham Jr. catch, that was pretty ridiculous. The wildest play. I think you need to look at the Boise State Fiesta Bowl against Oklahoma, the hook and ladder, and then followed by the Statue of Liberty play. Those were all pretty insane. The kick six going back to Alabama and Auburn, that was insane, them winning that. Jeez, there are so many just like weird little plays that have become iconic. 
You also got to think about the David Tyree catch, the San Antonio Holmes catch, both of those in Super Bowls, huge moments, huge catches to help their team secure the win. The James Harrison pick six, the 100-yard return that he had in the same game the San Antonio Holmes play happened. The Doug Flutie last-second touchdown that he had for BC in college, a ton. Um, those That's a massive list. I understand that, but I think those are right off uh, some of the plays that come to my mind. And the next question comes from Bailey Lehman, who asks, what are the odds the Steelers go to the Super Bowl? It's either going to happen or it's not going to happen. I heard a little rumor about you, Bailey, that you buy a Steelers jacket and now you are some sort of Steelers super fan. So welcome to the bandwagon. Happy to have you. Uh, big game this week against the Bengals. Be ready for that. But what are the odds? I think they're probably the second or third best team in the AFC, and I think it's a pretty decently sized gap between the Chiefs and everybody else in the AFC. So if they have to go to Arrowhead in the cold weather, I understand they play in Pittsburgh already, cold weather, everything like that, but Arrowhead and that atmosphere hits ridiculously different in cold January-type games, playoff games. So I would go probably 10 15% if I had to put a number on it. Um, let's look at some other questions now. We'll flip over to Instagram. Jack Muldoon asks, thoughts on the Cats starting out at number 10? He is referring to the men's basketball team for the University of Kentucky sitting at number 10 in the AP poll to start. I think it's fine. I think with how unpredictable this college basketball season is going to be with COVID, with upsets, with everything like that, with the rescheduling of games. If Kentucky finds himself in the top 10 all year, I think that's a pretty successful season. Um, you look at some of the teams in the past recently for Cal, they start off hot, then they hit a little bit of a skid, and they fall to like in the 15 to 18 range. And then as SEC play comes along and they start to find their groove they find themselves back in like the 12 to 5 range if you can stay in the top 10 all year which I think the Cats have a decent chance to do especially if they end up winning a lot of these non-conference games that I think they have a good chance to do um, then it's a good regular season and again I don't think you need to overreact whatsoever if the Cats do find themselves in that 10 to 18 or 20 range because they've shown in the past that they do that and then they start and look like they're going to peak at the right time for the SEC tournament and March Madness. You look at some of the other teams in that AP Top 10, Gonzaga has a lot of people coming back, so does Baylor, Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin from the Big Ten, they got a lot of people coming back that are going to be solid contributors, Virginia as well, Duke has a new batch of freshmen and they're going to mix in a few returning guys as well. So I don't think it's any slight on the Cats. I think there's proven known commodities in the college basketball world that are coming back for these teams that are ahead of Kentucky, why, which is why they're ranked ahead of them before the seasons even start. Again, it's a question mark for UK with what they have coming in, but I think it's going to be a very obvious answer uh, very quickly in the season that this batch of freshmen and transfers that Cal has coming in are going to be exceptional and maybe one of his best teams in years. So take the number 10 ranking 
get upset if you want to, um, be level-headed if you want to. I don't think it matters all that much. The next question comes from Keegan Riley, who asks, should a non-Power 5 team get into the college football playoff? You know who I'm talking about. He's obviously talking about BYU, and without a doubt, BYU's, he's not talking about BYU. He's talking about Cincinnati. I know that. What I would absolutely love, a little de facto uh, non-Power 5 play-in that could potentially happen if the teams wanted to with how wonky the schedules are set up for the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and if the SEC and ACC are going to have to reschedule games for like the COVID week, if BYU and Cincinnati could get together, get their administrations, their athletic departments, and find a neutral site that would host a game between them and have it be a de facto like playing game for the playoff if they're both undefeated at that point still, I think that would be awesome for not only those two teams but college football because in a year that is so so much different it would be nice to see a little change of pace and have a non-power five team uh, like a Cincinnati or a BYU get in ultimately to get even to that play-in game the de facto one both these teams have to remain undefeated and I don't see any real issue or reason why they couldn't be. I thought last week BYU was going to suffer their first loss at Boise State. Boise State did not do me any favors in that. Um, Wilson, the quarterback for BYU, looked great. For the Bearcats, though, Desmond Ritter, his last three games, he's looked incredible. Um, Controlling the pace of play for them, for the Bearcats, running the ball extremely well, throwing the ball when he has to, not turning it over, putting the Bearcats in exceptional positions to win. The ground game has looked great for Cincinnati. The defense has looked great for Cincinnati. If I was a Cincinnati fan like Keegan, I would be extremely worried about Fickle potentially going to a high, more high-profile job. Again, I don't know if Fickle wants to do that. Obviously, plays football at Ohio State, um, coached at Ohio State, has raised a lot of his family, lived there in Ohio for such a long time. I've heard his name thrown around for Michigan. If Harbaugh does leave as a candidate, I don't know if Fickle wants to do any of that. But to get back to the original question, if, if you just want to pencil in, which – It kind of throws a wrench in the plans, this whole Notre Dame beating Clemson last week. But if you just want to pencil in a more than likely undefeated Alabama, a undefeated Big Ten champion Ohio State, I think whoever wins the ACC, regardless if it's Notre Dame or Clemson, is in. You sort of, if you are these BYUs or Cincinnati's, you really are rooting for Notre Dame in that to knock Clemson completely out. If not, I think you could see all four of them as the number one, as the four teams, excuse me, in the playoff, just because Clemson will probably have Lawrence back for that game and end up beating Notre Dame, avenge that loss in the regular season. I'm... I'm more inclined and more comfortable with having an undefeated non-Power 5 team than a one-loss SEC loser, a 
let's see, a two-loss Clemson, things like that. So it is possible. You're going to need a little help, but I have absolutely no qualms, and I think rightfully so, and especially in such the weird year it's been, I think Cincinnati has a very decent chance. They control um, almost their own destiny. Same with BYU. Our next two and last two questions come from Michael Bennett, who asks, who will give the Steelers their first loss in the regular season, if at all? Mike, it's going to happen on Thanksgiving night. It's going to suck, but the Ravens are going to come into Pittsburgh and beat the Steelers. I mentioned it last week. It's just how the things work. Uh, It's a tale as old as time. Pittsburgh goes into Baltimore in the middle or early of the season and get a victory. And then in the last half of the season, where it looks like the Steelers are going to be playing for positioning and seeding, and really where they can't afford to lose a game, the Ravens come in there and just fuck them over and end up beating them and getting the win. So I don't... I've seen this story too many times before. I know how the book ends. I can guarantee that the Ravens are going to beat the Steelers on Thanksgiving night when that game is played. And then the next and last question also comes from Mike Bennett, who asks, what's one place in the continental United States that you've never been but want to visit? Love this question. Love how it's not sports-related. Would love to get a little bit more non-sports-related questions come going forward for the sack. So, 100%, I think, a great place that I want to visit and just marvel in the feat that happened there i'd love to go to yosemite national park see the dawn wall of el cap if i've talked about it before on this podcast but if you have not seen uh free solo the documentary about um alex honnold who climbs uh the dawn wall and el cap in yosemite with no ropes no anything by himself It is one of the most well-done, well-put-together, well-shot, visually impressive, anxiety-inducing, heart-pounding documentaries, pieces of film, anything you want to call it, that I've ever watched. And I've seen it probably five, six times. I know how it ends, but it makes my skin still, like, crawl and like the hair on my neck and my arms stand up just thinking about being in that situation myself to be able to go there and marvel at just the size of the wall also being Yosemite a huge national park to see where this what I think is one of the most impressive feats by man ever done and I understand there's other people that have done it in different situations and you could say it's harder or this or anything like that um I get that and you can take into account those as well when you go and watch it but I am would 100% love to go Yosemite to see that and also see the rest of the park big natural uh forest parks guy love that um I'm trying to think of another place. Maybe I've not been. I've been. I You could say Las Vegas. I've not been to Las Vegas when I'm of age. So I'd like to go back there when I'm of age. I'd really like to go to Halloween Town up in Oregon or Washington, wherever it is. I hope it's in Oregon because heroin's legal out there now. So let's freaking turn up with the Cromwells. Uh, Austin, Texas, I heard that's pretty cool, but 
ultimately Yosemite, uh, the Don Wall, El Cap. That's number one without a question. That does it for the mail sack for this episode of Carson Sack. As always, I truly appreciate everyone that sends in questions. It means a lot. It helps me out a lot. The segment is impossible to do without my listener interaction. So thank you very much. We're now going to talk about college football this week, and it is a pretty shitty week. As I record this, there is Maction tonight. On Friday, you have Iowa and Minnesota, a battle of one and two teams. I am going to go with Iowa in this one. I think they are a better team just overall. P.J. Fleck, um, this year with Minnesota, doesn't have him playing, I think, to the standard uh, that he usually does. Morgan, the quarterback for them, only three touchdowns, two interceptions. Uh, But you look on the other side for Iowa, Petrus, two touchdowns, Three interceptions for him through the air. Uh, But I think the run game with Iowa is what's really going to win this for them. Uh, Goodson so far on the year, 233 yards and three touchdowns. Um, I like him a lot. On the opposite side, though, Minnesota has a great uh, ground game with them. Their running back, Ibrahim, already has 10 touchdowns through the year, through three games. So I... Actually, I'm going to flip the pick. I go with Minnesota. The game is in Minnesota. Again, fans aren't going to be there, whatever. But I'll take Minnesota. Then we have East Carolina going to number 7 Cincinnati. Cincinnati is a big favorite in this one. Um, Need to talk about it. Cincinnati ultimately does get that win. This game, next game, Kentucky-Vanderbilt. It's at UK. Could be postponed. It's not for sure yet. There's some rumblings going on. Vanderbilt 0-5 on the year, Kentucky 2-4. Offense has looked fucking terrible as of late for Kentucky. If any game, it's going to click, and it's going to look good. It's going to be against a win this Vanderbilt team, so I take the Cats in this one. Then you have Ohio State and Maryland. Ohio State third in the country. Again, we were spoiled last year. This game last week against Rutgers was never in doubt. I think they eased off the gas a little bit. Um... I told my dad in the middle of the game when it looked like they were really just going to start pull away and bury Rutgers, like, hey, Maryland first half next week. Maryland's got an offense that is very conducive and will be able, I think, to exploit Ohio State's weakness on defense with a few big plays with the mobile quarterback and the cushion and the zone that Ohio State plays with receivers. Um, Jarrett, the five-star freshman for Maryland, I think might be able to take advantage of that a little bit. But then the rest of the Rutgers games develop. Rutgers was able to put up 27 points, more than my liking, but I understand it It was still a double-digit win in the Big Ten. Whatever. Say whatever you want about that for Ohio State. I think I think Ryan Day, that's just going to wake up Ohio State. I think they come out and they have a extremely efficient, good game. Maybe late in the game, fourth quarter, it does start to become a little bit closer. And that, if that is the case, it's another little red flag that needs to be taken care of sooner rather than later. If you are Ohio State and you're an Ohio State fan, but ultimately, I think Ohio State does end up beating Maryland. Then we also have a big ACC matchup, ninth in the country, Miami, going to Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech's favorite in this game. Vegas must know something. I'm an idiot. 
I'm going to go with Miami over Virginia Tech. Last week, Miami struggled a little bit with North Carolina. They were still able, able to cover that game, though. So I take Miami. Then we have Indiana going to Michigan State. Indiana, probably the biggest surprise of the season so far. 10th in the country, 3-0, going to Michigan State. Michigan State, their only victory, that rivalry game in week two against Michigan. Um, I don't think Michigan State is going to come out ready for this. I think they're going to fall flat. I understand it is a big game, but I think they were able to win that Michigan game because it was such... Mel Tucker, the new coach, put such an importance on it, so I'm going to go with Indiana. Uh, We got a lot of shitty games this week. Uh, Georgia goes to Missouri. I take Georgia after they get embarrassed last week by Florida. Coastal Carolina goes to Troy. Coastal Carolina is undefeated still. Coastal Carolina wins that. Let's see. Notre Dame goes to Boston College. Notre Dame's going to win the game. Boston College is going to cover. Notre Dame, 13.5. Boston College is, I think they are one of the better cover teams in all of college football this year. So I go with Boston College to at least cover, but Notre Dame to win. Uh, Louisville goes to Virginia. The same thing that I said last week before the game got canceled. Um, I could see Louisville winning this because they have a big offensive output. But if Louisville wants to turn this season around at all, the defense has to step up. And I think Virginia is doable enough to do that. Um, Their quarterback, Armstrong, is interception prone. Seven on the year. So I think it's doable for Louisville's defense to make some plays in this one. And Louisville get the win. Um, Texas A&M and Tennessee, that's postponed. Auburn, Mississippi State, that's postponed. Alabama, LSU, that's postponed. Arkansas and Florida, I imagine that's going to be postponed. Uh, the big, the big, quote, like fucking air quotes, big game. The ABC game for Saturday this week is Wisconsin, 13th in the country, after taking the last two weeks off, going to Michigan, sitting at 1-2. and two. I'm going to take Michigan in this one. People, Michigan's already out of the Big Ten title race, out of the college football playoff discussion, whatever. Harbaugh, I don't think he's coaching for his job yet, but I think they come out. Milton, the quarterback for Michigan, has a big big day. I don't think Wisconsin's quarterback situation um, is decided yet. Michigan's secondary is dog shit, but I think if Wisconsin's going to be forced to play a third or fourth string guy, um, Michigan will be able to get after him, maybe force him to make a few Quick decisions, bad decisions, and Michigan secondary maybe gets lucky, makes a big play when they need to, and uh, Michigan upsets Wisconsin. Then you have a battle of two undefeated teams in the Big Ten. Northwestern going to Purdue. That's going to be an extremely exciting game. If Purdue, who, if they can get back Rondell Moore, but David Bell through the year receiving for them so far. Four touchdowns already. O'Connell for them. Been a pretty solid game manager. Five touchdowns, two interceptions. It's a really contrast of styles. Northwestern is more the punch you in the face, try and run the ball, establish run type thing. Purdue likes to spread it out, get things involved. I'm going to go with Purdue to pull off the upset in this one to get a big win against Northwestern. And then, shit, Florida State plays North Carolina State. Sure, we'll go with North Carolina State in that one. Um, that's really it. And I, it sucks because 
you have a week like this and you got to tell yourself some football is better than no football, but gosh, this some football kind of sucks sometimes. And this just happens to be one of those down weeks. So um, that does it for the college football portion on this week's set. We can now look at the slate for week 10 in the NFL. It starts Thursday night. The Colts going to the Titans. I think Phillip Rivers... You, I've mentioned it before on the podcast how washed up he is. I think the Titans' defense, especially their secondary, is going to be good enough to take advantage of some of the more questionable throws he makes, a few interceptions for the Titans, a steady dose of Derrick Henry, who the Colts' defense is very good at stopping the run, but I think it's going to be a good enough game for Derrick Henry that Ryan Tannehill with the threat of Derrick Henry being there, some play action, that's going to open things up. Tannehill can take advantage of some things. A.J. Brown gets involved. Corey Davis. Humphreys, if he can get out of concussion protocol. Jonu Smith as well. A lot of weapons that Tannehill and the Titans are going to be able to use. I take the Titans over the Colts. The Texans and the Browns. This game scares me a little bit as a Browns fan myself. The Texans' offense is extremely... It it lends itself to be an issue for the Browns' defense. But if the Browns can get back some offensive pieces, which it looks like they are with Wyatt Teller, the guard that they signed, who has been an extremely bright spot on that good offensive line. Chubb is apparently already back practicing, working back for this week. If they can get that involved, I think the offense is going to be good enough to put up enough points regardless of how many points the defense gives up to get the win. So I take the Browns over the Texans. The Bengals and the Steelers are the next game. Steelers undefeated. I take the Steelers in this one. I think it's been like 8 or 9 or 9 or 10 games in a row that the Steelers have beat the Bengals. It's not going to end here. I think Joe Burrow is going to have a very long afternoon. I think the defensive line, the pressure that is going to be on him constantly is going to force him to turn the ball over. I think Minka has an interception. I think there's probably a strip fump, strip sack as well for the Bengals that forced by either Watt or Dupree or someone, Hayward, someone on that Steelers defensive line. So I take the Steelers over the Bengals. The next game, we have Washington and the Lions. I go with the Lions here. I just think their offense is going to be too... It's going to score too many points for an Alex Smith-led team um, like the Washington football team is going to be. Excuse me, I might have just called them the Redskins. I apologize if I did. How insensitive of me. But I take the Lions over Washington in this one, um, regardless of how good the D-line for Washington is. The next game, we have the Jaguars and the Packers. Um, the Jaguars' back of quarterback in Minshew's absence looked pretty decent going up against the uh, who they play. The Jaguars played the Texans last week. Excuse me. He looked pretty decent against the Texans' eh, defense. I think the Packers' defense with Jari Alexander, especially at the cornerback slot, being such a shutdown guy that he is, uh, the Packers' defense is better than the Texans, and I think the Packers are overall just a better team. So I take the Packers over the Jaguars. In the next game, it's an upset special for me. The Eagles going to the Giants. The Giants' defense is... Plays extremely hard for Joe Judge. The offense is still an extremely big question mark. Daniel Jones is still turnover prone, but I think it's going to do enough, and Daniel Jones isn't going to fuck up 
too much, and I think the Giants do end up beating the Eagles in a big NFC East matchup. The next, we have the Buccaneers and the Panthers. This game, the Buccaneers have to win this game. I'm declaring it a must win. For what they showed last Sunday night against the Saints, getting their asses handed to them, to the Panthers almost beating the Chiefs, and I think that obviously doesn't correlate all to Christian McCaffrey, but Christian McCaffrey adds such an element with being one of, if not the best, offensive players in the NFL with the ball in his hands and the ability to use him in such different ways. If he plays, I really think the Panthers have a great shot. I don't think it's a letdown game. I understand they did probably put a lot of emphasis and a lot of effort into that Chiefs game, but I don't think it's a letdown. Teddy Bridgewater is starting to look like the guy he did at the start of the season when the Panthers were winning games. You get McCaffrey back, you get him involved in the passing game, get him out in space. The Buccaneers probably still play a little bit better. Again, it's a must win for them. I do think ultimately they do win, but if it's very easy for me to be able to see them losing this game. But it is a must win, and Tom Brady wins must wins. So I put the Buccaneers over the Panthers. Then we have the Broncos and the Raiders. I'm going to go with the Raiders in this one. Um... I just think the running game with Jacobs, Derek Carr is looking pretty good in his role this year, second year with Gruden. Um, his ability to spread the ball out to different receivers all over the field, getting Waller involved, getting Aguilar involved, who is having maybe could be the comeback player of the year season for him. Um, they'll probably give it to Alex Smith, just sentimental feeling reasons like that. But Aguilar is having a great season there as one of their trusted receivers. And the defense with Abrams, the safety for them, he's all over the field everywhere um i take the raiders over the broncos then we have the chargers and the dolphins i'm going to go with the chargers over the dolphins in this one um i think too many people are too high on the dolphins i enjoy what flores is doing i enjoy the dolphins they've gotten back-to-back weeks with defensive touchdowns i think that ends this week and i think that stops momentum for them a little bit enough for where herbert can get his win um And the defense for the Chargers can do well enough to slow down Tua, who looked 10 times better in Week 2 than he did in his debut two weeks ago. But ultimately, the Chargers end up getting the victory over the Dolphins. And what I think has the potential to be a game of the year this year, this week, we have the Bills and the Cardinals. I'm going to go with the Bills over the Cardinals. Um, expect a lot of points. expect Josh Allen to have a big game again, just because I think that's secondary for... The uh, Cardinals with Buda Baker and Peterson are it's good. I understand that, but I think Diggs and the way um, that Josh Allen can beat them deep is what is going to ultimately propel them. And they're starting to find a little bit of a run game with Singletary and Moss. Moss being really that goal line back. I look for him to have another goal line touchdown this week, two in a row. Two weeks in a row, it'll be his third with one as well if he does end up converting. Kyler Murray, again, looked sensational last week. The defense for the Cardinals let him down last week. It'll be interesting to see if they come out revigored, um, energized, and try and avenge and really show up this game. But ultimately, I think the Bills do win this. Then we have another big NFC West matchup. We have the Seahawks and the Rams going up against each other. The Rams coming off their second loss of the week of the year last week. Really not Russell Wilson's fault. He did play a little poorly because he was sort of playing from behind, having to force things, force the issue, throw balls that to make big splash plays that he normally probably wouldn't have done if they're playing with the lead or it's a tighter game. Uh, the secondary 
is the biggest weakness for the Seahawks, and it's a shame. And again, Russell Wilson is able to go and win you games and put up big numbers, but he can't. There, there is a certain point where it's not doable, and we saw that last week with the Bills being able to put up and get out to a big lead early and really make that offense one-dimensional for the Seahawks, where then it became an issue. I think the Seahawks rebound a little bit. I think Jared Goff has a decent game. He's having about the most Jared Goff decent year um, so far this year. Look for him to have a bit of an uptick um, in stats this game. I think they're going to maybe try and force the run a little bit too much, which I don't think they should do. But I, I just think the Seahawks end up getting the job done. I think Pete Carroll, Russell Wilson coming off the loss. The secondary trying maybe to step up a little bit more. I take the Seahawks. Then we have the 49ers and the Saints. This really, for some reason, feels like a letdown spot after what the Saints did to the Buccaneers last Sunday night. Um... It's hard for me to pull the trigger on the 49ers with Mullins or Bethard or anybody else at quarterback. But I, and because of that reason, I'm going to go with the Saints. It feels like it should be a letdown spot. Maybe it's a like game winning field goal or last minute drive that the Saints have to do to get this win. But ultimately, the Saints end up winning. Sunday night game is the Ravens and the Patriots. Um, I saw nothing last night, you know, Monday night football that is. I, it's just, ugh. nothing the Patriots did last night was encouraging enough to me to think they're going to be able to hang with the Ravens this week. So I go with the Ravens over the Patriots. And then in the Monday night game, I could give two shits about this. The Vikings and the Bears, Dalvin Cook has looked incredible these last three weeks, um, scoring in a multitude of games and ways. The Bears offense looking abysmal under Matt Nagy. Just look at the stats. You got I'm I was high on Mitch at the start of the year. I was high on Mitch when they took him out. I'm still high on Mitch Trubisky. Bring him back. He's a bigger playmaker than Foles. He might not Foles might not make all the mistakes that Trubisky does, but I think to win in this league you have to have this it factor. This I'm going to go make a play. I'm going to do something, and Trubisky has that more than Foles does to me. Foles bottled it for that Super Bowl run with the Eagles. He had it then. Does he have it now? I don't think so. Um, when Trubisky is in, they're getting more rushing yards. That's more of a threat because he's able to run the ball a little bit when plays break down and he's mobile. It opens up the offense a little bit. I wish they would put Trubisky back in. They won't, so I'm going to go with the Vikings over the Bears. Now that the NFL is wrapped up for this week's sack, we can get to what I was most excited to talk about. We can preview the Masters this week. So, the Masters this week, obviously the big thing happening in the fall rather than the spring in April when it normally happens. I don't think that's going to have all too much of an effect. What I think is going to be an issue that hopefully it doesn't head this way to a Monday finish, but if 
There is an issue with the rain that could be coming because of the tropical storm in that um, part of the country. There's supposed to be a chance of rain every day. Hopefully it can miss it or they can work around things and get it finished because I would hate to see a Monday finish. I think the weather with the rain is going to play a much bigger part than what the fall and it cold or whatever it being. Just to get things going, uh, I want to talk about some odds for some of the bigger players. Bryson sitting at eight and one, he's got the best odds. Dustin Johnson right behind him at nine to one. John Rahm eleven to one. Justin Thomas twelve to one. Rory McIlroy fourteen to one. Xander Schauffele fourteen to one. Brooks Kepka sixteen to one. A lot of people are saying minus the Schauffele pick that really. That's where your winner is going to come from. Bryson, DJ, Rom, JT, Brooks, potentially. You've got some other people saying Cantley. Maybe it's his time. Cantley sitting at 25 to 1. I'd like to just get some stats out of the way here because, and we can talk about it a little bit going forward, but I've got a lot of stats that I'd like to talk about. So, first, and all of these come from Justin Ray on Twitter. He's a incredible follow for numbers and analytics and things like that on Twitter if you're into golf at all. But just want to give him credit for all these. But first, Justin Thomas, one of the favorites you could say. Just talked about his odds. But statistically, he's been one of the better iron players um, for the last two years. Each time he's played in the Masters, he's improved his finish. Um, he led the field in strokes gained T degree, T to green there last year. So um, this Masters, if we've seen anything, the Masters really, you don't have to be driving the golf ball extremely um, straight. Justin Thomas, as I've mentioned in the U.S. Open and the PGA previews on this pod, there's times when he has just a big miss, and it's right and left that comes into play. But if anywhere it seems a little bit forgiving, um, Augusta and the Masters seems like that's where it could be. So just a stat on Justin Thomas. I mentioned Bryson sitting at 8-1 to one with his odds. So Another stat on Bryson. Of eight players with eight-plus master rounds over the last three years, Bryson ranks dead last in strokes gained putting. There's going to be no question. Bryson is going to put on a driving display that is probably going to make the Masters reconsider layout and length and everything like that and maybe the entire world because so many eyes, casual and diehards, are going to be on this Masters and they're going. it could be a huge eye-opening experience for the golf world for what Bryson is going to do driving the ball, the lines he's going to take, the short amount of distances he's going to have in so many of these greens. He might even drive one. He's probably going to have a flip wedge into 13, the long par 5. It's going to be extremely interesting to see what Bryson does, but he has no chance this week if his putting doesn't improve. He's What is interesting to see in past years, um, when he's come to Augusta, he's been pretty decent on in other tournaments, on other courses, um, strokes gained putting. He's been near the top of the list, but then he gets to Augusta, and I don't know if it's just him, the lack of experience he has on the greens, the moment, anything like that. It's just not translated to the Masters like it normally does. Um, let's see. Again, what is so important is, 
on Augusta and for the Masters is strokes gained approach. Iron play is the most critical deciders of the Masters. So, players in the last five years to have led the Masters in strokes gained approach, they have finished first, first, second, third, and first. So, the winner of this tournament more than likely is going to have to be a great approach player. Why I'm pretty high on Justin Thomas this week because around the green, his... the the ball flight and his spin and everything he has on those low spinners that come into the greens, I tweeted it and I'll say it here. I would go as far as say I trust my life with Justin Thomas with that shot. Um, you look at other guys that are very good at that. Um, John Rahm, Dustin Johnson this year. Uh, Xander, as always. Brooks Kepka is extremely good in that. You go further down the list, though. On that, Patrick Reed, extremely good with the wedges. Uh, Finau can be extremely hot in that. Jordan Spieth, especially at this course. Webb Simpson as well. Um, Louis Oosthuizen, Scotty Scheffler, some guys there that I like a lot that are big in that. When I introduced the odds, we also talked about Rory McIlroy. He's sitting at 14-1. to 1. Rory, um, in his last five years at Augusta, third in strokes gained T to green. Um... Per round and in the last five years, as I said, he's 24 under on the back nine in his last five years. That's first out of every golfer. And then he has seven straight top 25s. That's the longest active streak for a golfer. It really seems like Rory is being this forgotten man. Uh, He's not had a great showing since the start to golf. Maybe the restart of golf that happened back in July, maybe with some time off in this little weird, funky wraparound fall season that's happened. He might've found something in that, that he can implement here. I just, I would feel remiss, not at least talking about him and having him at the front of my mind, because we've seen him in the past going all the way back to 2010, I believe is when he fell apart on the back nine. Um, how well he played there and was really dominating and was set to set some records there until that back nine on that Sunday. Um, So just keep an eye out on Roar because I think he is in for a very, at worst, consistently solid week for him. Um, As always, you say you drive for show, you putt for dough. We now look at some strokes gained putting for the last five years. Um, Minimum 10 rounds. These guys have the highest strokes gained putting. Ricky Fowler sitting at 1.81. Russell Henley, 1.43. Matthew Fitzpatrick is 1.19. Just above him, though, was Jordan Spieth at 1.25. I'm going to get the Spieth talk out of the way now. Jordan Spieth loves Augusta. He loves this course. He should be at least a two-time, three-time maybe winner here at Augusta. I was talking to my dad last night. We were watching live from the Masters. Going and looking back, I don't think I've been more upset as a golf fan than when Spieth came charging back that Sunday and Charles Schwarzel stole the fucking... Augusta stole the Masters from him. I'm getting so frustrated and mad about it now. Charles obviously played his ass off to win that, but what Spieth did in that final round on Sunday in that, I forget how un, how much under par he was, but it was a thing of beauty to watch. And then having Danny Willett uh, previously going and Spieth choking a little bit there, it infuriates me that Danny Willett and Charles Schwartzel, both of those guys, two fucking no-namers that are... N- 
regardless, don't move the needle, not relevant anymore. Charles Schwarzer is relevant every other year because he gets to play on the fucking President's Cup team, whatever. I don't care. Spee should be a three-time Masters champion. Again, I mentioned earlier when I was talking about JT, I mentioned it here. Augusta is a bit more forgiving when it comes to errant drives. Spieth can't be in the middle of bumfuck Egypt. He can't do that. But he there are places to miss here, and especially without fans and ropes and everything like that, this course is going to be a lot more open. Um, Spieth knows this course well. He plays well here. I want nothing more for the game of golf than Jordan Spieth to be relevant and good again. And I'm hoping that this is the week that maybe things come together for Jordan and he's able to put a strong, solid performance together. With all that being said, a lot, I think, I don't think you need to put a lot of stock into this, but it is an indicate, a good indicator for one player, I believe. But, um... Another stat from Justin Ray. Since 2000, only three Masters winners have finished in the top 10 anywhere the week before. Mickelson did it in 2004. Mickelson also did it in 2006. And Spieth in 2015. Uh, 12 of the 20 winners in that span since 2000 did not play the week before the Masters. Why that's important? Because Dustin Johnson had a pretty good week last week. Um, Almost won the tournament in Houston. Going back continuing about Dustin Johnson in his last six finishes he's done extremely well you go second first second third six second and when he did finish third he ended up winning the FedEx Cup winning that 15 million dollars where it comes into play where I think it's important for one particular golfer um where it's trending in these last tournament and it's a good sign and I think it does matter is Brooks Kepka. Brooks Kepka last week at Houston was plus 6.36. That's a fuck ton of strokes. Strokes gained putting last week. Um that was his best performance in that statistic for strokes gained putting since his win at the WGC um in Memphis last July. Why that's important? What Brooks went through with the knee injury and the question marks and surrounding that, um, Brooks, when he is on, it's because of his putting. The driving and the iron play, I think, is always going to be there. When it's when he struggled, especially in Harding Park earlier this year uh, with the PJ Championship, it was because of the putting. That really became the unraveling. I think it's a good trend, and I think you need to put some stock in that for Brooks because we saw last year when he was on that roll and he was in contention, um, he was putting the ball extremely well. So I like that a lot for Brooks, and that's a thing to keep an eye on for Brooks, who right now his odds sitting at 16-1. to Some more stats looking now. Um... Kepka leads all players in strokes gained tee to green per round in the Masters the last three years. So that's big for him as well. We can continue on. Um, as I mentioned earlier, again, a lot of people are thinking it's just going to really be that five or six guys. A guy I like who has some good history at Augusta in his shortened time there, Tony Fee now. Um, in the last two years, he ranks um, strokes gained total. 
He's tied for fourth. Scored a par. He's tied for fourth. He's tied fifth in the amount of birdies and eagles he's made. Strokes gained tee to green. He's sixth. And strokes gained putting. He's seventh. I know the knock on Finau is that he can't close. He's not a winner. He's a contender. But he's always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Last year we saw he faltered a little bit. I think that had more to do with his clothing choice than his play, but he was looking crisp in an all-purple outfit, purple top, purple hat. Nike Golf was looking, making him look pristine. Um, I get away from that now. I like Finau a lot just because of recent success. Um, if you want to talk about the weather being an issue and maybe the coldness being a factor for driving distance and things like that. Finau hits the ball a dick here, and he's shown over the course of this year and over the course in the history, the last two years at the Masters, um, around the greens and iron play, he's pretty solid. As I mentioned, and also Justin Ray mentions, the big indicator and the big stat to really keep an eye on are the strokes gained approach. And since the season restart, and this is for a minimum of 20 rounds, JT is third in that category. Dustin Johnson is fourth in that category. Some other notables, Finau is 26th. Rom is 40th. I have some more stats, and I really like Rom a lot this week, and I'll tell you why here in a little bit. Uh, Xander is 51st. Patrick Cantley hasn't played a ton of golf since the restart, but he's 68th, and what is extremely concerning, my biggest concern for Rory is he is 82nd since the restart. I mentioned John Rahm a little bit earlier. I'd like to get back to him. And since the last two years, his scoring on par fours and par fives has been near the top um, per round, per event for the Masters. But his par threes scoring over the last two years in that same time time span has been remarkably low. If John Rom can continue to, I don't even think he needs to be first or top two like he has been in those scoring statistics on par fours and par fives. If he can be in the top ten for those and just tighten up his play on the par threes I think he has a great chance to win this week as well so I guess it's time for some picks all right let's go back to the odds just another little quick stat most top seven finishes and majors since 2017 Kepka, McElroy, Finau, and Shafle. I like Shafle because last year he showed really I don't think he played bad coming down the stretch. I think Tiger really just went out and won it. Obviously, a lot of people are going to be on Bryson. I understand that. I have my concerns about his putting, but I think he's a favorite for a reason, and I think him being able to drive the ball and have all these short shots in, and we saw that he's able to take advantage advantage of that enough when he won the U.S. Open that you have to factor in Bryson. Dustin Johnson, just the way he's trending, you have to think about him as well. John Rahm, I told you why I like him, because I think one of the better iron players, Strokes, Tita Green, he's right up there as well. Um, Rory, again, I gave you the history about that. The Strokes gained approach is a bit concerning because that seems to be the most important stat, and so far, he this year, 82nd. Losing a little bit of his luster with the wedges. I'm going to just keep going down here. I really like Finau. Um, I really like Patrick Reed because of his strokes game approach. 
Jason Day is solid. Um, I don't think he's going to make a lot of mistakes. I don't know if he's going to go out and win the thing, but he's not going to make a lot of mistakes. I really like Webb Simpson for the same reason. I don't know if he's going to go out and lose it. Um, if he was in the position, it could be a matter of like he's a good fantasy type play, but he's not going to go win. I think he's just going to be solid. A name to keep an eye on that I think is going to do extremely well is Louis Oosthuizen. Um, it just one of the most solid players on tour. I really like Scotty Scheffler. He's played pretty well in the mass in the majors that he's played so far. It's his first master, so that's a little concerning. Another name I'm looking at that it's not in that big top six group, but it's somebody that I think he's played here enough. He's had some success here. Is Ricky Fowler? I think him taking that time off, um, we're getting some injuries healed up. Um, the success he's had on the greens in the past, I really think that lends um, a lot of stock to be had for um, this week. Spieth, I mentioned, I really want him to do well, but it if Spieth is going to put it together, it's going to be here, but I don't think he ends up getting it done. So, Bryson, DJ, Rom, Justin Thomas, Rory, Brooks. Those are your big six, and I... Out of those, I'm going to pick Justin Thomas out of that group. I think if any time were for to happen for him, he's, it's now. He's had a great, eh, not great, he's had a very good uh, showing since the restart of golf, getting victories at the work, at uh, not the work day, excuse me, he came in second there because of Morikawa bombing the putt, but... um. He's had a victory since the restart. He's played fairly well in the U.S. Open there. Um, I just think that he is poised this week to do well. Um, other guys that I'm interested in and I think have a pretty good chance Tony that are not in this big five, big six to win. Tony Finau, Patrick Reed, Xander, just because of how solid he is and consistent he is in majors. Ricky, Louie, and then my extreme long shot that I, for some reason, I just have a feeling. And I have no clue why, but Cameron Champ. Guy hits it a fucking dick here. Hits it extremely far. He saw some success in the... um, the PGA this year out in Harding Park, he was right up near the top. He looked like he was going to win it there for a little while on the back nine, but then Morikawa came on strong. If he can get his iron play just near the middle or the first half, the first fourth of the field, like a top 25, I think with how well he drives the ball, he's going to be in position um, to be on the leaderboard in contention on Sunday. So that's... That's my master's pick. So if really, if I had to start and pick somebody, it's JT and then Finau, Reed, Ricky, Cameron Champ, and Xander. Those are my guys. I'm riding. I'm riding with them. And I hope maybe JT can pull it out and slip on the green jacket Sunday afternoon.
All right, that is going to do it for the Masters preview. That is going to do it for this episode of The Sack. Before I sign off here, I do have to remind you, The Sack is brought to you by Thrive Fantasy Sports, and they are doing a ton of contests for the Masters this week. They're still doing NFL plays as well. Check those out, but the Masters are going to have props every day, Tuesday, excuse me, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So if your guys aren't making the cut, it doesn't ruin your weekend. Check them out for the, all your masters, daily fantasy sports, props as well. And again, check them out for your NFL props as well. Great site. Check them out at thrivefantasysports.com in the or Thrive Fantasy Sports on the app or Google Play Store. That is going to do it for episode 77 of Carson Sack Podcast, where we talk balls. And as we always end here on the sack, we will be I don't want to go to sleep tonight when I can stay up thinking about you.